You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Yahweh said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that Yahweh takes shall come near by households. And the household that Yahweh takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of Yahweh, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning, and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near this household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to Yahweh God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against Yahweh, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them, and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent, with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua, and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before Yahweh. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? Yahweh brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 685 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 11th, 2023. That was Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I think we should start with the perhaps obvious, but it needs to be said anyways, incongruity between how seriously God takes his commands and how seriously we take God's commands. Let's start there with this business about Achan and his household and all that he has and his having taken and kept things devoted to destruction. That's what this reference to devoted things is all about in Joshua chapter 7. It goes back to Joshua chapter 6 when God is giving Jericho into the hands of Israel, and except for Rahab and everything in her household, everyone in her household, everything else is supposed to be devoted to destruction. There's something about Jericho. Jericho is exceptionally ripe for judgment, God's judgment. God says, destroy everyone, destroy everything, don't rebuild the walls, don't rebuild the city, don't let anyone live, everything except for the gold, the silver, the iron, and bronze. Everything else is to be destroyed. It's to be burned with fire or else killed and then burned with fire. If it's alive, kill it. If it's not alive, burn it with fire. If it's alive, kill it and then burn it with fire. Everything is to everything is to be destroyed. Everything. And the metals are to go into God's treasury. And then you get this guy, this guy, Aachen, who is singled out. And this has got to be a tense moment or period of time. This is probably not quick. There's probably a lot of suspense that's built. 
God could have done this a different way. He doesn't do it a different way. He does it in this way with the casting of lots. Have all Israel come forward and then choose a tribe by lots. What is this to say? God is going to show them which tribe has offended him, but then it's not the whole tribe. It's a certain particular clan. And so cast lots again, and God will show you in the result of the casting of the lots, which tribe and which clan, and then which household, and then finally, which man in particular in that household, narrowing it down and down and down and down. But up until this moment where it's revealed that it's Aachen, and he's interrogated, he's questioned, and he he confesses, he admits, up until this moment, the judgment is on all of Israel. And you have to understand, God is not unjust, he's not unfair, he's not unreasonable. But again, there's an incongruity on that point as well, that we don't believe that. We don't believe that God is fair and just and reasonable like we ought to. And so we think, well, if it's one guy, right, one man messed up, and so the whole class has to skip recess, essentially? Ah, yes, but wait a second. Understand when Aachen is singled out and he confesses and they go and they find that he has taken these devoted things, whether devoted to destruction or devoted to be taken into God's treasury, and then his sons, his daughters, his animals even, all that he has is devoted to destruction. You have to understand that all of Israel being under judgment up until this moment, and then the whole household of Achan being under judgment, it surely means Achan was not the only one who knew that he had taken these devoted things. Others saw him taking these devoted things and shuttling them back and forth, and they said nothing. They pretended, ah, no big deal, right? None of my business, like Kermit the Frog with the sweet tea meme. But that's none of my business. Ah, yes, but it is your business, actually. It was your business. God wants you to consider this to be your business, that one of your number is disregarding. Did it not occur to you to stop him, to warn him? Hey, listen, God said not to do that thing, and you're doing it. We're all going to have trouble if you do this, and we look the other way. We're complicit, essentially. Aachen's family apparently helped him. That is the solving for X, like an algebraic equation, working with variables, solve for X here. Apparently, his family knew, they were privy, they were aware, and they showed partiality towards this member of their family who did this thing, and then they paid for it. And before that, others in Israel saw him going back and forth, and there was probably a little bit of murmuring. And so then this quickly does become everyone's guilt or near enough, because once it hits a certain critical mass, do you know what happens in groups of people? The larger the group of people, and psychologists, social scientists have figured this out with repeated experimentation, the larger the group of people bystanding when there is an emergency, the higher the psychological cost for any one in the group to take the initiative and recognize first that this is an emergency, and then two, to take the initiative 
and intervene, engage in helping behavior, they call it. The larger the group of people, the easier it is for everyone standing back to reinforce everyone standing back. After this, therefore, because of this, because everybody else is standing back, I'm going to stand back. And so long as everybody else is standing back and saying their reason is because everybody else is standing back. Any one person taking the initiative in that group and saying, hey, this is an emergency. We need to intervene. We need to deal with this. We need to confront it. We need to help. We need to stop. We need to do something. Any one individual taking the initiative pays a high cost psychologically because they don't want to step out of the at least illusion of safety and security, the illusion of normalcy, which is being created by what everybody else is doing or not doing as the case may be. In this case, God is not impressed and he hands these thousands of men who go up against AI over to their enemies. And they don't suffer a crushing defeat, but it's near enough, right? If your expectation is we're not going to lose anybody, they're going to lose everybody, we're not going to lose anybody. When your expectation is that, then you lose 36 men and however many you lost, you fled the battlefield because God wasn't with you, because actually God was on the side of your enemies in this case to teach you a lesson, to drive the point home, lest you be so flush with victory at Jericho, you think you did this by your own strength, your own wisdom. God will correct that. God will discipline his people, his nation yet again. But then you have Joshua. And here's an interesting thing. Joshua falls on his face and starts waxing dramatic. Oh, why didn't we just stay on the other side of the Jordan? If this is what you were going to do, why, God, why? Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content, but then it wasn't a question of contentment. That's the wrong diagnosis. Would that we had been content. No, no, no. The problem's not contentment to just stay on the other side of the Jordan. The problem is whether or not you guys are content to obey God and to require one another to obey God. That's the question here, whether you actually fear God, whether you love God, whether you trust God, whether you obey God. That's the question here. But it's interesting because that kind of response from Joshua, falling on his face, waxing dramatic, and misdiagnosing the problem as a lack of contentment, that I see all over the place here in the United States of America, in the church in America today. When we have problems and it's apparent that we're under judgment and you start pointing out, hey, listen, we're under judgment right now. Things are not working the way that they were even just a few short years ago. Maybe possibly God is trying to discipline us and correct us. How do far too many of the leaders respond in the church? How do far too many of the Christian influencers respond? Just like this, waxing dramatic and then reframing the whole situation as a problem of us as individual Christians and as corporate Christians just not being content. Ah, yes. Oh, I see. So the problem is we overreached ourselves and this is not reasonable for us to have wanted the good things, the blessings, the provisions, the protections of the Lord. That's that's the problem is we're just not contented enough, 
right? We're Americans. Yeah. How often do you hear that? This is all just because we're Americans. What would it have been like if Joshua had said to God, oh, the problem here is that we're Israelites. I mean, you know, right? You know, Israelites. All of that is just so much noise to God. And the irritation from God and his response, starting in verse 10, is palpable. It is palpable irritation. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, which is to say, I'm not going to reward this kind of behavior. I am not going to let you just carry on without negative consequences, because what will you learn from that? This is no big deal. You'll normalize the deviance if I continue to bless you and provide you with victories when this is not just an instance of you having stolen from me what was devoted to me or devoted to destruction according to my word. When you think you can lie to me, God says, when you think you can lie to me and that I'm just going to keep on blessing you with victories, you've got another thing coming. Get up. Get up. He says it at least twice here that I counted. Get up with an exclamation mark. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. What's interesting here, if you think about it, this really boils down to the holiness of God and whether we, by our obedience to what God has commanded, regard God as holy. Do we have a high enough view of God when it comes to what he has told us to do and to be about? That's really what this boils down to. Now, if you do have a high view of God and you do regard God as holy and you do regard his commands as imperatives, I have to obey. I fear God. I love God. I trust God. I obey God. Well, then, that will be evident, not just in what you do that God tells you to do, but also what you don't do when God tells you to not do it. So, for instance, don't lie to God. There's a big takeaway. He's not impressed with that. Don't silently, passively stand by when others are lying because that makes you complicit in their lies. When others are disobedient, and these are supposed to be God's people after all, don't pretend you didn't know it. Don't play dumb. Don't play coy. Joshua's response to all this is apparently not to God's liking. He asks a stupid question, and he gets a very terse answer from God. God asks a question right back. Why have you fallen on your face? Which is to say, your reason for falling on your face should be re-examined. You should reconsider your motivation for this dramatic display. Israel has sinned. And that's a fact that Joshua is apparently overlooking. He has neglected that. He's coming up with some other explanation, some other framework other than sin on the one hand, which brings punishment, discipline, correction, and obedience on the other hand, which brings a blessing, which brings a reward. The promises of God are associated with obedience and blessing on the one hand, or if you won't obey, if you'll sin, if you 
are going to be stubborn and stiff-necked, then correction, curses. God reminding Joshua and the lack of (laughs) any inclusion of those details in the preceding paragraph where Joshua is tearing his clothes, falling to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, he and the elders of Israel needs to be reminded. They need to be reminded. They need to have this all corrected. And God is going to do that correcting. It's a funny thing how easily this fits our current circumstance. We're not thinking in terms of obedience, what has God commanded, trust, faith. We just say grace, grace. And then we act shocked and we go in the wrong direction, even with regards to the negative consequences. And we say, ah, yes, this is just a problem of our lack of contentment. Now we're just living like the rest of the world is living. You know, if everything is falling down around us economically, politically, socially, if our families are being torn apart, our churches are being torn apart, that's all just good times having come to an end finally. We were just under the illusion before that we should expect good things in life. What is that, right? That is falling on your face, throwing dust on your head, tearing your clothes, being very dramatic. No, no, let's go back to the part where there was transgression in the camp and you knew it and you didn't put a stop to it. You didn't deal with it. You didn't confront it. Go back to that part. So it's actually a tremendous mercy of God here. We get fixated on Achan and his household being destroyed, but actually it's a tremendous mercy because so long as Achan gets away with it, Israel is doomed. Doomed to believe that there are no consequences. You don't have to obey God. But then if there are no negative consequences, when God has promised negative consequences for those who rebel against him, who disobey him, who are wicked, who are sinful in a high-handed way, in an intentional way, fully cognizant, fully aware. If there are no negative consequences, well then also too, you shouldn't expect positive consequences when you're obedient, when you're faithful, when you do what God tells you to do. So God correcting this in a very public way, it being in the book of Joshua, this is for our benefit. It is good for us to see this for us to know it, for us to meditate on it, for us to take it seriously. This is part of the reason why you should have the fear of the Lord be at the fore of your decision-making paradigms. And correspondingly, when the fear of the Lord is at the fore of your thinking, your fear of everyone else and everything else gets retooled. Jesus says, don't be afraid of men. What's one big reason why a lot of people would stand back and not intervene if they saw Aachen and his family, his household, his sons, his daughters, smuggling things out of Jericho to hide them under the tent. Fear, not just of Achan and his sons and his daughters, but fear of stepping out of the comfortable blanket of whatever everybody else is doing. No, next time around, think first about whether you are stepping out of the blanket of what God has called you to, what he has put before you, what he has given you to do. Think first of that. And oh, by the way, Everyone else will either have to come around and it'll be easier for them to come around if they see you leading by example, but everyone else will have to either come around or they will continue as they have been and suffer for it. 
Moving on from Joshua chapter 7 for a bit, though, I want to talk about two articles that have been on my mind, as well as some updates, some updates as to what I am working on. But actually, these two topics are really one topic. The two articles about the same subject generally, plus also my talking about what I personally am up to, all of the above go together. And that's because we're going to be talking in all of the above about vocation and about the home and about the family, specifically how men need to think about these things, how men need to think about authority in the home, in the context of the family, in the context of their households, their clans, their tribes. First up, Jean Edward Weith published a piece back in 2016, September 25th of 2016, at Ligonier.org. You can find his article, or if you check out the description for this podcast episode, you'll find a link embedded. But the title of the piece is How Vocation Transformed Society. And this is not a long read, so I'll just read the full thing for you, starting from the top. Jean Edward Weith writes, Christians today often speak of transforming society, a dramatic example of how a theological teaching had a revolutionary social impact is the Reformation doctrine of vocation. Society in the Middle Ages was highly structured, hierarchical, and static. That would change beginning in the 1500s as an unintended consequence of Luther's doctrine of vocation. For Luther, vocation, the Latin word for calling, means far more than a job or profession. Vocation is Luther's doctrine of the Christian life. More than that, vocation is the way God works through human beings to govern his creation and to bestow his gifts. God gives us our daily bread by means of farmers, millers, and bakers. He creates and cares for new life by means of fathers and mothers. He protects us by means of the lawful authorities. He proclaims his word and administers his sacraments by means of pastors. Vocation, Luther said, is a mask of God, a way that he hides himself in the ordinary relationships and tasks of human life. A key text for vocation is 1 Corinthians 7.17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. The immediate context of that passage has to do with marriage. Our families, our citizenship in a particular community or society, our congregations, and yes, our workplaces are all facets of the life to which God has assigned and called us. The purpose of all of our callings is to love and serve the neighbors that each vocation brings into our lives, in marriage, our spouse, in parenthood, our children, in the workplace, our customers, and so on. We are saved only by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, but then we are sent back into our callings to live out the faith. God does not need our good works, Luther said, thinking of elaborate efforts to merit salvation apart from the free gift of Christ, but our neighbor does need our good works. Our faith bears fruit in love, Galatians 5, 6, 1 Timothy 1, 5, and this happens in our families, our work, our communities, and our congregations. In these callings, we also bear our crosses. We sin and find 
forgiveness, and we grow in faith and holiness. Medieval society was divided into three estates. The clergy, those who pray, the nobility, those who fight or, in practice, those who rule, and the commoners, those who work. The clergy were thought to have a vocation, a distinct calling from God to pursue the spiritual life apart from the world. Devoting oneself completely to prayer and spiritual exercises was considered to be of far greater merit than what could be found in these secular estates. Entering a religious order required the vows of celibacy, poverty, and obedience. For Luther, not only was this pursuit of merit a rejection of the gospel, but such vows repudiated the very realms of life, family, work, government, that God had established. These realms, he insisted, were Christian vocations as well. Luther redefined estates as institutions designed by God for earthly life. These are the church, the state, and the household, the family, and its economic labor. These parallel the medieval estates of the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. But whereas in the Middle Ages, these were three separate social categories for Luther, these are spheres of life that every Christian inhabits and in which every Christian has vocations. The rigid social distinctions between three estates, those who prayed, those who ruled, and those who worked, crumbled. The life of prayer is not just for a priestly class, but for all believers. The state is not just the concern of a ruling elite, but for all of its citizens. The household is not just for commoners. Everyone, including the clergy, can be called into marriage and parenthood. Everyone, including the nobility, is called to productive work. Everyone prays. Everyone, eventually, rules. Everyone works. Another name for the doctrine of vocation is the priesthood of all believers. God does call some Christians to be pastors, but he calls other Christians to exercise their royal priesthood by plowing fields, forging steel, and starting businesses. But all priests, including peasants and serving girls, need access to God's word. So, during the Reformation, schools opened and literacy flourished. Educated commoners moved up the social ladder and would eventually govern themselves. Workers who loved and served their customers by their labors found economic success. Whereas Luther addressed a static late medieval society, Calvin and later the Puritans adapted vocation to the emerging modern world. They stressed the callings of the workplace and encouraged Christians to embrace the new opportunities to which God was calling them. Thus, the Reformation brought unprecedented social mobility. The doctrine of vocation has been strangely forgotten today. What would a rediscovery of vocation do to today's society? Great question. That is a great question. Kudos to Jean Edward Weiss and Ligonier for bringing this kind of content to us. I'm very appreciative. In part, I'm very appreciative because since at least late high school days for me, I have been aware that a lot of folks in broader society assume that a man who is interested in talking about the Bible, reading his Bible, studying more broadly church history, studying theology, trying to apply what he's learning and talk about what he's learning, a man who is in such a state of mind, of course, is going to go to seminary, is going to go and become a pastor. Of course, right? Of course. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. 
For one, perhaps you have a rather too high view of the pastorate, but on the other hand, perhaps you have a rather too low view of what every other Christian man should be about and should be aspiring to, which is to say, I should be able to work a blue collar job. I should be able to work a job, for instance, in the oil and gas industry and study the word of God and study church history and study theology and study to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed of rightly handling the word of truth. That's not the exclusive domain of those who pray, the priestly estate, the clergy. No, 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 no. As a husband, I should be studying so that when my wife asks me after a church service, hey, what did you think of that? That one comment in the sermon. What did you think about that one song? What did you think about that part of the announcements? Is that true? Is that good? How is that true? How is that good? When my wife asks me, and I have studied to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, I can actually give an answer that's not shameful and embarrassing or misleading or corrupting or what have you. When my children, let's say, for instance, my sons come to me asking for advice, they want counsel, and I'm supposed to give my sons godly counsel as a father. My having studied the Word of God, studying church history, studying theology, having studied to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed of rightly handling the Word of truth, allows me to give my sons good advice, sound biblical advice. I don't have to be a pastor to be able to give my sons wise, godly counsel from the word of God or to teach them what it means that the Bible says this and God says that and God did this thing and he's promised these other things and this is how we should live more broadly. That so many of us presume that that is the exclusive domain, the special domain of pastors is very unfortunate. That's very, very unfortunate. Gene Edward Veith was right in 2016 when he said, we have strangely forgotten the doctrine of vocation, the priesthood of all believers. We have strangely forgotten this. But it's even more true, I would say, in the year 2023 than it was in 2016. But at the same time, it's all the more apparent what happens when Christian men, husbands, fathers, employees, business owners, forget these things, forget the doctrine of vocation, forget that God has called them to a special purpose. He has a special gifting for them. They have certain spiritual gifts with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They have certain talents that the master has entrusted to them. They may not be the same number of talents or the same kind of talents as others, but the master has entrusted talents to them. And what are they doing? With those talents. And if they don't do anything, if they just bury those talents in the field, if they relate in a godless way, we all feel it. We all feel the loss. And yet, on the flip side, if they invest those talents, we all reap a benefit. They, especially, first and foremost, but then by extension, if they're loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, they're loving their neighbor as themselves. Gene Edward Veith is exactly right. This is what we call economic growth. This is actually what drives economic growth in the West, that we would love God and keep his commandments, fear God and keep his commandments, and at the same time, not instead of, but as part of that, we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so we have an orderly tradition 
as Christians. You work, you earn. You save, you invest. You build up, you serve others. And then in return, they compensate you for having served them well. And the better you serve them, the more people are going to want to have your services. Why? Because if they are pursuing excellence, if they are pursuing faithfulness, if they want to get a good quality product or service from you so that they in return can love their neighbors as themselves, they can love their wives as Christ loved the church, they can love their children in such a way as to produce godly offspring, well, they're going to want to buy the best quality product from you so it goes into their package of materials. They're going to want to buy your services, pay you for your services, hire your services if your services are the best so that your services coupled with their services provide the best overall delivery to their clients, to their customers. And then also they reap a benefit and they're able to provide for their wives and their children because they are earning a reward. In all toil, there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And unfortunately, when we have a forgetfulness with regards to the doctrine of vocation, all we get is men in the church, if they come to church at all, men in the church who talk. That's all the men do. If the clergy are supposed to be about clerical things, clerical things, if they're only supposed to be interested in teaching sound doctrine. If that's all you need is sound doctrine about God and about abstract things, well then, before we know it, all we're doing is studying, but we're not working. Notice, study to show yourself an approved workman, which is to say, you study to know the truth so that you can do good works. Remember, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. When we forget this, and some people want us to forget because they are actually very arrogant, they want us to not be aspiring to live a quiet life, working with our hands, just as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. They want us to not aspire to minding our own affairs, they want to mind our own affairs so they can take a little cream off the top for themselves whenever they please. They want us to not mind our own affairs because then we might call them out when they are behaving in a fraudulent way or in a slothful way or in a deceptive way or in a malicious way. They don't want us to aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own affairs so that we can walk properly before outsiders being dependent on no one. They don't want that. Why? Because they want us to be dependent on them. And that dependence, actually, friends, Romans, countrymen, that dependence on everyone else all the time for everything is so dangerous. If I'm always depending on other people, and my wife and my children, for instance, are supposed to be depending on me, am I being dependable to my wife and my children? The simple answer is probably not. And maybe sometimes aspire to live a quiet life means you would if you could. If you see an opening, take it. Just like as much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. It's an aspirational model. It doesn't mean you're going to actually be able, this side of the eschaton, to live peaceably with all men. Sometimes others stir up conflict and there's no getting away from it. There's no avoiding it. 
actually to mind your own affairs. You're going to have to stand your ground and you're going to have to tell them, hey, no, this is my business. This is my household's business. This is my family's business. This is my private business. Literally, I have a corporation. I have an LLC. I have a what have you. This is my responsibility. Also, I have authority here. You don't have authority here, but out. How about you mind your own business? Oh, you don't have one? Well, maybe your first order of business should be to have your own business. You don't have any business because you're constantly meddling in other people's affairs. And then ducking out, claiming to be some kind of a hero. There are people who have wanted us for about a century to forget about the doctrine of vocation. And we call those people experts. And it's not a bad idea to have people who know more than you about a subject. That's not bad at all. But when we need experts for everything, for even the most simple, basic of tasks, and when we demand experts make all of our decisions for us, what ends up happening is we atrophy all of the characteristics that would prove quality, but more to the point, that would prove We actually do love God. We actually do trust God. We actually do obey God. We fear God and we keep his commandments. The parable of the talents, for instance, features three servants given differing quantities. What you don't have is the wicked servant who's rebuked at the end of the story for burying his talents in the field. You don't have that wicked servant being commended because he compared, he did the math, he looked at how much he was given, he looked at how much The other two servants were given and he saw that they were given more and he figured, okay, what's the point? No, no. Our over-reliance on experts for everything, our complete lack of drive for self-sufficiency, minding our own affairs, in so many cases, is us being that wicked servant who buries his talents in the field. And oh, by the way, that's also why our economy is doing so poorly. What is that? It's rank selfishness. It's disobedience to God and it's apathy towards our neighbors. That's what you're actually seeing. When you see the economy doing poorly, it's actually that we are loving God poorly and we are loving one another poorly or not at all. Our hearts have grown cold and hard and apathetic and indifferent except to whatever pleases us. This whole doctrine of vocation business is actually critically important as well when it comes to the state So the civil magistrates or the nobility, those who fight or those who rule, saying there is no such thing as other people's children. We don't respect your authority, fathers especially, over your own children. What is that? That's a rejection of the doctrine of vocation. No, no. Listen, I'm called to be a father. I am a father. I have seven sons, an eighth on the way in November, a beautiful daughter named Evelyn who has four older brothers and now four younger brothers. I am called by God to be a father. That means I have authority and responsibility. And yes, actually, there is such a thing as other people's children. For instance, when you're talking about my children, you're talking about somebody else's children, not yours, not yours. And if more of us were standing our ground on that, these mountebanks, these predators, these charlatans, would not be nearly so bold as they are, but they are so bold because we have buried our talents in the field. We don't remember this whole doctrine of vocation business. 
For another example, just think about the plight of those who hold to a traditional view of gender and sexuality. And by traditional view, I don't mean first and foremost, here's what's been passed down, but it's okay for you to recognize this is actually the norm for all of human history. This has been the norm, the rule, those who get married and stay faithful to their marriage vows are honored. Those who are faithless or who are profligate or who are carousers, they are not honored. They might entertain us for a time, but they are not honored and they do not tarry. They do not persist. They do not endure. They come to bad ends consistently. That's part of why you don't want to encourage this kind of behavior because it always ends badly. Being sexually immoral always ends badly, not just for those who participate directly, but also for those who affirm it. But you can say traditionally, those who get married and stay faithful are honored and they're rewarded and they're blessed. And we want more of that. And so we honor them and we have a tradition of honoring those who get married and keep their vows. So also those who have children and they raise their boys to be virtuous, strong, capable, honorable men. We honor those parents. We honor those mothers and fathers. Mothers and fathers who raise their daughters to be beautiful, graceful, lovely, sweet, caring, nurturing, submissive to their husbands, attentive to their children. We honor the mothers and fathers who raise their daughters to be that way. In our day, the plight of those who hold to a traditional view is one and the same with the plight of those who hold to the biblical view, which is not to say that the traditional view is always the biblical view, but it is to say in the West, these two are largely overlapping because of how much of an influence Christianity has had on the West historically. You can look around and you can say, I don't see a lot of Christianity right now. I don't think it's ever been all that Christian, really, truly. And I say, you're entitled to your opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Read Dominion by Tom Holland. Get back with me after that. But the plight of those who hold to a Christian ethic with regards to gender and sexuality, the plight of those who hold to a traditional Western view of gender and sexuality in our day is that there is no limit to what you can say that is ugly about them. There's no limit to how you can box them out of economic activity, economic participation, economic opportunity. And again, this is because we have forgotten or rejected or denied the doctrine of vocation, that God has called us to anything. If you're a man, God has called you to be a man to his glory. If you're a woman, God has called you to be a woman to his glory. And this is part of what was so perverse in the monastic traditions in Europe that elevated vows of celibacy, poverty, silence. They elevated the internal world, the immaterial world, in a very Gnostic way. Immaterial, good. Material, bad. Distracting. Just getting in the way. How would it be if I said, you know what? Being a husband, being a father to all these children, it's hard work. I don't have nearly enough time to read the Bible and pray. I'm going to go join a monastery. There were people in the Middle Ages who did exactly that. That was their modus operandi. Things got hard. Things got difficult. Things got challenging. And so they would just go and join a monastery if they were men, or they would join a nunnery if they were women. 
And then all of a sudden, the expectation was, we're going to regard them as the holiest. You don't have to join a monastery or a nunnery per se to have spiritualized being selfish and cowardly and unproductive. And again, the question is, do you actually believe God has called you to this or are you just saying that because you want to do what you want to do? And you're actually selfish and stubborn and stiff-necked and shallow and superficial. You say you're honoring God and yet your words betray you. Your actions, your behavior, your lack of love for those around you betrays you. You know, just yesterday, I had some back and forth with a young man, not all that much younger than me, actually, but I think of him as a younger man because he and his wife have been married for a few short years. They have no children. They both work full-time out of the home. And I had this back and forth with this young man who has decided to go his own way. And so be it. I tried to warn him. Hopefully, in time, the good Lord brings him around and teaches him a better way. But right now, what he does is he comes into situations and he throws stones at everyone and then he's out. Before anyone can really reason with him or correct him on anything or even question him going back and forth, he's out, he's gone. And he says that God is calling him to that or he thinks or he feels like God is calling him somewhere else. What if it's not actually that God's calling you somewhere else? What if you're just selfish and undisciplined? What if you just want your own way and people aren't giving you your own way and you maybe don't even know what your own way is and it changes from day to day? What if you just want your own way and when you don't get it, you behave in a spoiled way? Storm off, take your ball and go home. All the while, throwing rocks at the people that you just left in the dust. Not corrections that they can do anything with. Not corrective advice that's actionable, that edifies them, that builds them up, that honors God. No, no. Just insults. Just put-downs. Just hurtful barbs. For what? There's more to the situation with that young man than I can get into in depth in this episode. But I'll say one of the rocks he threw at me was that my credibility is less because of my perspective on having children and my perspective on managing finances. If I worked on the way I manage my money and how I talk about having children, if I worked on that, maybe I would have more credibility. People would take me more seriously. And I think, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Let me, let me back up. You, you just finished lecturing me about how all I do is talk and talk and talk and talk. Between the two of us, you and your wife work outside the home full-time. You have no children. We've talked about it. You have no immediate plans to have children. You both work full-time, and you mean to tell me that my views as a Christian man, my views need some work with regards to the managing of money or when and whether to have children and how many and how to parent them. You have zero children. You have zero children and both you and your wife work full-time outside of the home. And you mean to lecture me about managing money? I think we're doing pretty good if I'm managing money with the help of my beautiful wife, Lauren, managing money well enough to not be homeless, for one thing. The lights are on. The water is running. We have food. 
We have groceries. Our kids are getting a good quality education. We have vehicles. We're able to put fuel in the vehicles. We have insurance. I'm supporting myself, my wife, eight children with a ninth on the way in November on just my salary. Try again, right? Try again. Try again. What exactly is it that you think I'm just talk, talk, talking about, but not doing that I should be doing by all means? Oh, no, you're just going to, okay, fine. You're just going to go. Okay, good. Then go, right? Then, then go. Maybe if you weren't just throwing insults at people and put downs at people and then walking off, you would have more credibility. Don't lecture me about my credibility. Please and thank you. In all toil, there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. If we would remember the doctrine of vocation, we would understand there is a calling on our being here at this time in this circumstance. If God has given you an opportunity to get married and he's put a young woman, men, or a young man, women, in your path who is available, who loves the Lord, who is honorable, who likes you, thinks you're cute, thinks you're pleasant to be around, If you have the opportunity, your first question shouldn't be, well, let me check the Wall Street Journal. Let me check how the stock market's doing. Your first question shouldn't be, would it be better to wait a year, two years, three years? Maybe a Republican will get into the White House. Why isn't your first question whether God has called you to marriage? If you're married, why isn't your first question whether God has called you to raising godly offspring? Why isn't that your first question? Why, when you go to work, when you are gainfully employed, why isn't your first question, why has God put me here with these coworkers or these customers or these clients? Why isn't that your first question? Why is your first question, how do I avoid getting fired by HR? That so many of us are more afraid of being canceled in the workplace being reported to HR, being sent to re-education, DEI training, or whatever woke nonsense, that more of us are preoccupied with that day in and day out, and that it shapes so much of what we say and do and don't say and don't do, that is inversely proportional to how interested we are in what God has called us to in our workplace. And again, this is why we are seeing economic decline. But then it's a macro, it's a macro problem that stems from on an individual basis and in small pockets and communities, men, individual Christian men in particular, having forgotten or else rejected the priesthood of all believers. Whether they're participating in the economy and they just don't apply what it is that the Bible says because they don't study because that's the pastor's job, right? After all, whether they check out of the workforce because, hey, you know what? I need more time to study the Bible. I really can't go the extra mile for my customer or my employer or my manager. I'm busy doing holy things. Well, wait a second. It's a holy thing for you to love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe your customer, maybe your coworker, maybe your employer, maybe your manager is your neighbor right now. And are you loving them? Well, there's a question. Let's move on to the second of these two articles, because The second of these was sent to me by my friend, two houses down, friend and neighbor, J.P. Chavez. The first one, by the way, thank you to Lucas Abernathy, also my friend, but not my neighbor, two houses down. 
But this next one we'll talk about. A piece by Michael Laffin at Ad Fontes Journal from August 7th, 2020, well into the pandemic, well into the lockdowns and mandates and social distancing and all the rest, economic shutdown globally. In some sense, a campaign by the aristocracy, the nobility, and certain activists they keep well fed against the other two estates, the other two institutions, the other two spheres of authority. One, the church. Two, the household, the family. This piece titled Inhabiting the Places of Promise, Martin Luther's Teaching on the Three Institutions. I will not read all of for you, but I will read the introduction and I will read the conclusion. From the top, here's the intro. Discussions of Martin Luther's writings on society, ethics, and politics in the English-speaking world tend to focus on his teaching concerning the two kingdoms, which divides authority into temporal and spiritual realms. Often overlooked is the larger theological framework within which the two kingdoms' teaching is situated. In particular, his teaching concerning the three institutions, or estates as they are more commonly called, has been, with a few important exceptions, largely neglected. According to Luther, scripture references, institutions, or concretures, concrete sint, created together with human beings that bear God's promise to provide for human creaturely life, especially in its social aspects. The three institutions are, Luther says, the church or ecclesia, that's how you say it, by the way, ecclesia, the household economy or okinomia, and politics or politia. When Luther's treatment of the three institutions is neglected, the teaching concerning the two kingdoms tends to take on a life of its own, leading to quietist interpretations of the Christian's relation to governmental authority or a division of human life into autonomous quote, worldly, end quote, and, quote, spiritual, unquote, spheres. The latter understood in an individualistic and inward sense, none of which was intended by Luther. In part, wariness of Luther's political theology stems from appropriate concerns about how it was misused in early 20th century Germany to justify subservience to Hitler's Nazi regime, a proper understanding of the institutions and how they function in Luther's thought, however, will show that they help us to subject earthly authority, churchly, political, economic, to the criticism of divine revelation and force into the open the idolatry behind any claims of absolute authority by any of the three institutions. Such claims were made primarily by the church hierarchy in Luther's time, the state in Nazi Germany, and some might claim by the economy in our own time. Further, without attending to the teaching on the institutions, Luther's social and political ethics become separated from his larger theological commitments, dissolving their organic unity. The three institutions can give us much needed critical purchase as we seek to faithfully inhabit our vocations and the institutions that support our vocations in the world today. Therefore, my purpose Laffin writes, My purpose is to set forth Luther's teaching on the three institutions 
indicating its inseparable connection to his larger theology of the Word of God, and then to spell out its implications for the way we might think about social life, ethics, and politics. Now let's pause there. That's the intro. The rest of what follows is good, but that's the intro. Again, you see themes that carry over from that article, much shorter, in the Ganeer by Jean Edward Weith. Again, you see Luther in particular being credited with bringing the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God, the whole Bible to bear on three spheres of authority. Yes, we have the church and the state. We have the church and state, and we debate a lot today about what rightly belongs to God and what rightly belongs to Caesar, what rightly belongs to the church, what rightly belongs to the state. What's lost in so many of these is what rightly belongs to the family. What rightly is the domain of the family, the household. Luther would not be impressed, but that's not the main thing. God is not impressed. God instituted the family. Husbands have a particular responsibility that is not to be confused with the responsibility of the state to their wives. Fathers have particular responsibilities, not to be confused with the responsibility of the church to their children. Don't send your kids to church and think that it's the church's job to be their daddy. Don't send your kids to the public schools, for instance, for example, and think that it's the state's responsibility to be a mother to your children. That is not what God commanded. That's not what God instituted. That is not what God intended. That is not what God gives us in his word. That's not the right way to handle the word of truth. When we act like that, we are clearly not equipped for every good work because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And are the verses that would tell us to aspire to live a quiet life working with our hands, which is to say we are called to that, that is a vocational calling, working with your hands, are we going to those verses that talk about working with your hands, what you produce by the sweat of your brow, what you glean from fields, the fruits of your labors, that you would enjoy them, that you would provide for your family, for especially the members of your own household, your immediate household, thereby, are we going to the verses that pertain to this? Do we apply them? Do we study them? Do we meditate on them? Do we think about them at all? If the intention of certain unscrupulous pretenders is to make us dependent on them and they don't especially want to work, when they set the example and they say, do as I do, and that means not working, what you will get is economic decline. And that is to say, people eating and not working. It's a biblical command. The one who does not work shall not eat. What does that have to do with the household, the economy, for instance, for example? Yes, the church has a role in reinforcing that and not giving so-called charity to those who won't work, refuse to work. They are idle. They are slothful. They're lazy. They're busybodies. They're troublemakers. They don't work. They don't produce. They don't invest. They're the wicked servant who buries his talents in the fields. And then they say, ah, this is the most godly thing. I'm not being worldly. Like Laffin points out, it gets weird when we get away from this idea of there being three estates, three institutions instituted by God, not all just social construct and tradition and whatever totally arbitrary, take it or leave it, 
minnow, how we, how we participate in these institutions, that can vary. That can be a fluid thing within certain boundaries, within certain strictures of the scriptures. But think back to the church hierarchy in Luther's time. Think about the aristocracy handpicking who would be a bishop, who would be a cardinal, who would be pope. Why? So that they had a man on the inside who then would sign off on what they wanted to do and not do in their role as king or emperor or what have you. In far too many cases, not in all, not in all cases, but in far too many cases, that was the reason why church offices became so sought after. When there was a shift from you're the first one in line to be persecuted and martyred to you're the first in line to be honored and rewarded and clothed in sumptuous silks, housed in palaces, waited on by servants who make sure your goblet is always full, your plate is diverse and colorful and delicious. What resulted was a corruption that by Luther's day was outwardly, openly, in far too many cases, predatory on the common people. They were so many sheep, not being fed, but shorn and slaughtered and served up on a plate whenever it pleased the master of the lands, in full view of the church and sanctioned by church officers, justified, rationalized, with what? Be subject, obey, submit. Well, yes, that is in there. That is biblical. Submission to authority is biblical. But who all has authority in a scenario like, say, for instance, the year 2020? Say, for instance, for example, the state governor says you have to wear a mask or you can't go outdoors or you can't go to work or you can't go to weddings, you can't go to church. We're going to close the churches. We're going to tell the churches we'd like them to close. Who has authority? Do I, as a father, as a husband, have authority to say, no, listen, we are going to go meet with our small group and have a cookout and throw the football and chat and encourage one another, check in on each other. Do I have authority? How about the pastors? Do the pastors have authority to decide whether to continue assembling together, meeting together? The simple answer is yes. It's not just the civil authority who has authority. So be subject to every authority for the Lord's sake should not be limited to Caesar. The idea that men become wholly dependent on human authorities is so very dangerous and it's not biblical. You cannot glean that from the scriptures. You can only selectively read that into the scriptures by cherry-picking verses that, in many cases that I see, grant a blank check and total, absolute, unquestioned power to you if you are in authority, or give you a pass for disobeying certain authorities in preference to other authorities, to where you basically just say, hey, you know what, I like what these certain authorities are telling me to do and not do, and so I'm going to listen to them. Ah, but wait a second, right? But wait a second. Not so fast. Let's read the conclusion of this article at Advantes. 
the importance of the three institutions for reformational, social, and political theology, Michael Laffin writes at the end, given the theological context for Luther's understanding of the three institutions and given a sense for what constitutes their material context, what is their importance for contemporary Protestant ethics or politics, most importantly, attention to the three institutions ensures that reflection on questions of ethics and politics remains rooted in the patterns of the divine promises as found in Scripture. It furthermore allows for discerning the concrete contours in which a commitment to sola scriptura bears materially on such questions. Let me say that again. It furthermore allows for <clears throat> allows for discerning. So you're going to have to think about this. You're going to have to meditate on it. You're going to have to ask God for wisdom about this. Discerning the concrete contours. So we're talking boundaries here in which a commitment to sola scriptura, which is to say the doctrine of the Reformation, which says only scripture is an absolute and infallible authority for the Christian, bears materially on such questions. So what that means is instead of it just being an abstract thought exercise, as too many of us regard theology to be, this is to the end of the man of God being complete and equipped for every good work. That's what it means for sola scriptura to bear materially on such questions. You're going to live this out. It's not just abstract ideas. You will live it out. Hear, understand, believe, obey. It means, Michael Laffin writes, we read and interpret creation in the light of scripture and not as an independent source of revelation alongside scripture. It also prevents appeals to natural law or unassisted human reason from becoming untethered from the words and promises of Scripture. In other words, the framework of the three institutions prevents Scripture from being abandoned for the imaginings of the human heart. Now, let me pause there for a moment. The imaginings of the human heart should not be conflated with, confused with the leadings of the Holy Spirit, as though whatever your heart wants, you should follow that no matter what the Bible says. Your heart could be leading you astray, actually. That may not be the Holy Spirit leading you to do that. That may not be that God is leading you to do that or to say that thing. It could be that it's just what you want to do. I just feel like God wants me to... Not, I just feel like you should support this controversial claim with Scripture. Does that count for anything? That I just feel that? No? Yes? Maybe? Hmm? No, it's objectively true. It's objectively true. That's what God's word says. Don't expect me to take you seriously with the, I just feel like talk. If that's all you got. Unassisted human reason. See also the enlightenment. See also rationalism. See also what the French did when they created a cult of reason to replace the role that Roman Catholicism had previously played in public life in France. Unassisted human reason is Rousseau's idea. That's the radical left's idea of liberation. Unassisted human reason. What's the counter? What prevents appeals to natural law or unassisted human reason from becoming untethered from the words and promises of Scripture, which is to say they're not unassisted anymore? 
put simply, a belief in the three estates, the three institutions, these three spheres of authority. You might think of them as three branches of government. You might think of them as being systems of checks and balances, which are designed to help you to be rewarded when you do what is good and deterred from doing what is evil. As God says, every governing authority, every authority is instituted by God for the purpose of rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do what is evil. In other words, Laffin writes, the framework of the three institutions prevents scripture from being abandoned for the imaginings of the human heart. In short, Luther's three institutions discipline our political and ethical reflection in conformity with the, quote, deep grammar of scripture, end quote. The focus on revelation as found in scripture rather than read out of the created order independently of scripture also means the institutions are circumscribed and developed in response to scripture, not by reference to sociological formations. And so see also here, when people talk about this or that being a social construct, wait a second, not so fast. That's a dangerous line of argumentation for the Christian because at the end of it, you admit that it's all arbitrary. But when you admit that, you're believing a lie, you're promulgating a lie. These institutions ultimately have their formation in the commands of God, in the designs and purposes of God, in the character of God. How would it be? Just think with me for a moment. If you're a Trinitarian Christian, you hold to the Apostles' Creed, you hold to the Athanasian Creed, you hold to the Chalcedonian Creed, you hold to the Nicene Creed, you hold to the historic creeds of the Christian faith, which Christians have measured who is and isn't a Christian by for thousands of years. If you are a belief in the Trinitarian God, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in whose name we are to baptize the disciples we make of all nations, how would it be if someone said to you, yeah, you know what? God the Son, not really God. The Holy Spirit, not really God. Only God the Father is really God. We would say, you're not a Christian. You're a heretic. You're a heretic. You believe that and stubbornly maintain it and hold to it. You're a heretic. You're not actually a Christian. So we understand intuitively that for the Christian to believe that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, they're co-eternal, they're consubstantial, co-equal, but distinct God in three persons, not three gods, one God in three persons, and it's a mystery and it's somewhat incomprehensible. We understand that intuitively. It's not a bug. It's a feature of our Christian faith for 2,000 years. And then think with me for a moment about what there might be of an echo of the importance of Trinitarian doctrine, what we lose if we deny the deity of Christ, what we lose if we deny the deity of God the Father, what we lose if we deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. Think with me for a moment now about three distinct but overlapping institutions of human authority, spheres of human authority. What do we lose if we deny that there's any authority in the church or there's any authority in the home, in the household, in the family? We lose quite a lot, actually. There's a lot of scripture that all of a sudden becomes very, very unclear, very confusing, and really ultimately nonsensical because it's all throughout scripture. Coming back to Laffin's conclusion here, 
The focus on revelation as found in scripture rather than read out of the created order independently of scripture also means the institutions are circumscribed and developed in response to scripture, not by reference to sociological formations. The concept of institutions tunes our attention to the places in scripture where God has set forth his good intentions for human life, helping us discern the faith or idolatry embodied in all actual social political formations. For Luther, the final cause of any social or political community that is healthy is the promising word of God, but in their distorted anti-communal form, such communities are warped by the unbelief that refuses to trust and accept his word. Reflection on the institutions, which is to say on the shape of the divine promises to care for human life as revealed in scripture, brings to light that to which our hearts cling in social and political life. The institutions illuminate faith and idolatry. They ask us, do particular economic configurations reveal trust in the divine promise that the earth will provide for all of God's creatures when inhabited with trust in our heavenly father or betray an idolatrous reliance on human domination to leech sustenance from a groaning earth? Does a given political configuration reveal our denial that God ultimately rules human affairs leading us to trust human force and power alone to realize peace? Or does it reveal trust that peace is finally the work of the slain lamb? Does our view of the church suggest that it must grasp after power and influence to secure its position in society? Or do we trust God's promise that he is with us to the end of the age, such that we perceive humility and weakness as true marks of the church and as the sign of God's power at work in reconciling the world? Now, let me just pause right there. The aspiration should not be that we try to be weak. God has not given us a spirit of timidity and far too many of us hold to timidity because actually we're trying to avoid conflict in an unreasonable way, in an unrighteous way, in a disobedient way. We were given a spirit of boldness and of a sound mind and of discipline. But much of this paragraph I really do agree with as to the idolatry or faith we express as we interact with these institutions. I go back to the young man I was engaging yesterday and his lecturing me about how I manage finances, how I have managed family planning and having children, how I could get more credibility if I worked on those two things. And I say, I am finite, but by God's grace, we eat, we're clothed, we're housed, we go to and fro, I'm not ignorant on these things, but maybe just maybe you should get the plank out of your own eye. (laughs) You should get the plank out of your own eye before you try and help me with the speck in mine. Because between the two of us, I've been married for going on 17 years. I have all these children, and that's not a brag. That's not a boast. Thank God, right? These are gifts from God, a heritage from Yahweh, a reward. I think back to the lockdowns and the mandates and the order to close churches, keep them closed indefinitely. And I think some of us were revealing an idolatrous view of the authority of the state, bowing down to worship the golden statue of the king when the chimes and the music started up. Some of us were willing to comply with the order to pray to no one but the king for 30 days. That's what I see. Some who have authority in the church responded first and last and only with a reaffirmation of the authority of the church. Wait a second. What about a reaffirmation of the authority 
of husbands and fathers over their households. Where does that come into play here? Does that not come into play here? I think it does. I think it should. I think that's part of the role of the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the pastors. I mean the church. We are the church. We are the saints. If we are in Christ, we are the saints. We are the church. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the full-time vocational ministers. No, no. No, 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 no. If we hold that view, again, is that faithfulness to God that we've studied in his word, we derived that from the word, is that what honoring those in authority is supposed to mean? Or does the priesthood of all believers, does vocation and calling necessitate that we have an idea of such a thing as rights? It is right for me to provide for my wife and children. It's right for me to protect my wife and children. It's right for me to give direction, encouragement, permission sometimes because they need to do certain things. Protection. Hey, if somebody starts trying to give you a hard time about doing this thing that I told you you could do, you let me know. I'll deal with it. I'll talk with them. I will hash that out. Continuing on. One more paragraph. Our temptation. Michael Laffin writes, our temptation, which results from unbelief, is to absolutize the institutions in a human attempt to possess that which can only be received as a gift of God. So rather than embracing creaturely limits, the state attempts to provide the peace, security, and cooperation required for human flourishing by any means necessary. The market becomes a God to which communities, livelihoods, and the common good are sacrificed. The church strives above all else to recapture a position of political influence, but in turning human hope to the state, the economy, or the church itself, we risk getting pulled into the grasping vortex of one or the other in a desperate attempt to secure by our own means that which God has promised in his word to provide. Bayer describes such attempts as lust for future things, an unhealthy domination by the future and the flight from the present that accompanies such preoccupation. On the other hand, trust in the divine promises as revealed in the divine word, promises which the teaching on the institutions alert us to, allows us to inhabit these places of promise in the present, in the certainty of divine provision and favor, we can turn our full and patient attention to the neighbor. Free from the distorting pressure that comes from the false belief that the future is entirely ours to secure, or even from the false belief that the justification for our life depends upon getting our service to our neighbor right. Rather, Luther's teaching on the institutions provides the grammar for living in places where we are set between God and neighbor, enabling us to freely serve as conduits of God's love to God's creatures, we become, as Luther would put it, Christ's one to another. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about Joshua chapter 7 and think about how we have different spheres of authority showing up in this story of Israel being defeated at Ai, Joshua falling on his face in front of the ark, he and the elders of Israel putting dust on their heads, waxing dramatic, crying out to God, why God, why did you even bring us here? And then the theatrical turn of events with the casting of lots, get up, get up, why have you fallen on your face? We have different spheres of authority here. Keep in mind, Joshua is a civil authority here. Think commander-in-chief. Think president. Think leader of the people in a civil sense. That's Joshua. Joshua is not a priest. 
He's of the tribe of Ephraim. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He is a civil authority. He gives orders, go spy out the land, go send out the troops, go do this, go do that. They obey. Good. But then he's not the only one falling on his face, throwing dust on his head in front of the ark. It says also the elders of Israel. Who are the elders of Israel? Well, they're the chief men of each tribe, of each clan, which is to say, God being a God of order, some of the units of measure here come into play in verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Israel is called tribe by tribe, lots are cast. It's significant that the tribes are distinct. They are part of a unified whole, but they're distinct from one another. There is organizational structure. There's authority tribe by tribe because each tribe has elders. And chiefs come from each clan of each tribe. And then those clans being ruled by chiefs, chiefs are over households. Households then also have heads. Heads of households are husbands, fathers, men. Achan and his sons and his daughters are complicit in this sin, which reflects poorly on their clan, on their tribe on the nation of Israel, there is authority all the way down. And then there are people who are under authority who can't just say, I was following orders. How weak is our political theology, our understanding of the limits of authority, real though it may be, so also the limitations are real. How weak is our conception of these things if we're shocked, we're surprised, we don't know what to make of it, that Achan's sons and daughters are also stoned with stones in this valley of Achor. How weak is our conception of the limits of authority if we suppose that Achan is the only one responsible, if he gives instructions to his sons and his daughters that contradict what God had commanded. Achan says, hey, help me carry this back to my tent. Help me to secret it and to bury it. And then the whole nation of Israel suffers for it. God says, cast lots. He doesn't ask, cast lots. He commands, God commands. Joshua then gives the command from there. The command from there comes down to one man being questioned. What have you done? I confess. I took the devoted things. I hid them. I saw them. I wanted them. I know they didn't belong to me. I sinned. I sinned against God. All right, well, here comes the judgment. Here comes the penalty for your sin. And not just on you, also for those who were following orders in an absolutist way, in an idolatrous way, because effectively, essentially, you took the place of God by contradicting God to those under your authority, and they obeyed you, which is to say they obeyed you rather than God, which is to say they regarded you as God instead of Yahweh God, and so they are also culpable. I was just following orders is not a suitable defense. No. I, as a husband and a father, have to recognize the limitations on my authority. It's very real authority. So also the limitations on my authority are very real. At work, I have to recognize the limitations of my authority. I have some authority, not absolute authority. Those who manage me have some authority, not absolute authority. You know, just yesterday I was asked, would I be willing to do a certain thing because, oh, it's an emergency. And I said, oh, 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'm going to need that in writing. Well, no, 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 no. I, you know, I don't want to put you in that kind of a spot. Yeah, I, I wasn't comfortable with it either. I, you know, but listen, there's a higher authority in the company, which I have heard and I have read and I know it. And you know that if I were to do this thing and it went badly, I would not be absolved. I would probably be in trouble and you would be in trouble if you had written down that you asked me to do this thing. No, no. In the church, pastors have real authority. The limitations on their authority are also real, no less real. The limitations are you cannot have a pastor who is commanding things that go contrary to what God has commanded. It's as simple as that. So also in the civil realm, if a civil authority has real authority, so also the limitations on his real authority have to be regarded. Why? Because God himself puts limitations on the authorities which he has instituted. And if you don't know what God has commanded, you only know what human authorities have commanded. If you pay no attention, no heed, you do not regard the commands of God in relation to human authorities, well then, effectively, those human authorities are your God. And that's a problem with the Most High God, Yahweh God. That's a problem for him. And it should be concerning to you. But the flip side is, if we properly approach, appropriately execute our authority, and also submit to authorities under God, there is so much blessing. There is so much provision and protection and reward in that God is honored. He's glorified. So also we serve our neighbors. Thereby, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If we see them being oppressed, threatened, punished, lied to perhaps in a totalitarian way, if we speak up and we say, hey, you in authority, repent. You under authority, don't think. You're going to be able to say, I was just following orders. No, 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 no. Be warned. Maybe they'll listen and they will thank you. If they're wise, they will. If you show them from God's word, maybe they'll hate you for it. You have to take that on a case by case. Don't correct a fool or he will hate you for it. Correct a wise man and he will thank you. A wise man wants to become wiser still. If he's wrong, he wants to know how and why. Don't just throw accusations. No, no, that's not loving. That's self-serving. That's self-promoting. But in closing here, I'll say what I'm working on is a presentation for this Sunday evening. We're going to have our first Ecclesia Forum to discuss political theology so that we relate to authority when we're under authority and also when we have authority in a more God-honoring way. That's the purpose of the Ecclesia Forum. That is our first project of the Welfare of the City Project here in Greeley and Evans, Colorado. You're welcome to join us, 6 p.m., Summit View Community Church. You're welcome. We're going to be discussing education. And one of the points I really want to stress in my keynote, because I'm giving the keynote address, I won't every session, but I will be giving a keynote for this first session on education. One of the points I really want to stress is that education is to the end of helping our children in particular, especially if we're talking about childhood education, helping our children to be able to live out this doctrine of vocation. What has God called you to? Are you equipped for it? Can you do the good work that God has prepared for you to do, to honor him, to love one another, 
That's what an education is supposed to be for. And you want to get the best education for yourself. You want your children to get the best education. Fathers in particular, you're responsible to make sure your kids get as good an education as they can. That's why God gave you these children. And it's a blessing. It's a privilege. What an honor it is. Not burdensome, not a hassle. No, no. If some people are making it unpleasant, well, then maybe that needs to be looked at and we need to deal with that. That's what I'm working on. That's what I believe God has called me to work on and to do. In some sense, I am approaching this topic of even talking in this podcast and also this coming Sunday evening with the Ecclesia Forum. I'm approaching these things because I believe this is my vocation. This is my calling. This is what God has called me to do. And I want to invest what the master has entrusted to me so that it gets a profit because that is what he commanded. He gave me these abilities, these opportunities, these relationships, this time, this place, these resources. Well, then I'd better invest them. And if he's given you different talents, relationships, place, time, resources, opportunities, you have a different vocation. It may be similar in some ways. I hope I can encourage you to also approach your calling, your vocation in a way that is filled with joy and is fruitful and productive, honoring God, loving your neighbor. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.